Well, it's really good to be back with you this morning after uh, being on vacation last weekend. Uh, I'm so thankful for our other elders who could fill in for me while I was gone. Now that I'm back, I'm going to step right back into 1 Peter, where I left off. Uh, last time I preached from 1 Peter, I preached from 1 Peter 2, 18 to 25. However, as I was uh, preaching that text and as I was looking forward to the next text and even looking at the previous text, we're in this section of Peter where Peter is advocating uh, over and over again that Christians be a people that are given to submission. And as I've been studying these texts and preparing these texts, I'm just realizing over and over again just how much uh, these verses, these texts, come against our modern sensibilities, right? Because in our modern world, in our American mindset, we are very anti-submission, right? We think that uh, submission is something that makes someone less than, something that takes away our dignity, and so we defy any command that would tell us to submit. And so instead of just kind of plowing through uh, these verses as we would normally do, I did want to pause and take a few weeks just to look at more of what the Bible has to say about authority and submission. You know, the, the work of preaching is not simply the work of uh, repeating what the Bible says, but it's, it's the work of making what Scripture says compelling and beautiful so that we together want to follow it and so that we together as a congregation will be of one heart and of one mind. And so that's why I didn't want to uh, just go through these texts very quickly, but rather I wanted to pause. And so this morning, um, we are going to kind of take a step back, and our readings will begin in 1 Peter 2.11. That's where this whole section starts. And then our readings will take us all the way through 1 Peter 3, verse 6, which is where this whole section on submission ends. And I wanted to read all of these verses together, just so we all can kind of hear these verses together. And I believe that even as these verses are read, you'll kind of feel the same weight that I have been feeling as I've been studying these verses, just reading these and thinking, oh my goodness, you know, what if... Someone who's not a Christian uh, reads these verses and then thinks that, uh, you know, this is what Christianity, this is what the Bible is all about. They're so offensive to our, our modern ears. Um, and so I want to take some time to go through these verses and see why they are indeed good news for us, why we can gladly submit to God's word even in these difficult matters. And my prayer is that we will indeed see them as a blessing and as God's good word to us. And so, in just a moment, I'll invite Sadie to come up. She'll read the first paragraph, 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. Then Anna will come and read the next paragraph, 2, 13 to 17. And then Matt will come up and read verses 18 to 25. And then finally, Krista will come up and read for us verses 1 to 6. So let's all listen now to God's word. 1 Peter 2, 11 to 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, 
not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls." Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit." which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Well, again, there's a number of these things in these verses that are challenging to our modern culture. Um, and that's why I wanted to take some extra time to address these things. I think the main thing that would be objectionable to our modern culture is probably those things that are found in verses 18 to 25 that begin with the words, servants, be subject to your masters. Now, in these verses, Paul is encouraging servants to be subject to their masters, clearly even in cases where their masters are causing them suffering, right? Or causing them abuse, even when those servants are doing good. And in our modern parlance or in our modern way of thinking, if we were to read this from a worldly perspective and we were to be able to talk to Peter about this, we would probably look at Peter and say, Peter, in these verses, it sounds like you're just enabling abuse. And then, of course, from these words from servants, be subject to your masters, Peter heads right in in 3 verse 1 to say, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. And so, of course, this sets off alarm bells in modern minds about how could Peter, the apostle, be encouraging this? How could God himself approve of this as this is his inspired word? And so what are we as Christians to do with this type of mindset or with this type of objection? In short, 
these verses do raise this question of does the Bible, does Scripture condone abusive authority? Does it permit abusive authority? Does it enable or empower abusive authority? And of course, the answer that I want to give to that this morning is a flat no. The Bible does not in any way condone that. And yet, I want us to see how the Bible condemns that and how we as Christians are to live even in the midst of unjust or abusive authority. Now, it is clear in these verses that Peter is calling Christians in general to submit to authority, even when it seems unjust or abusive. And I think Peter is calling for that at every level here, at the level of being submissive to government, at the level of servants being submissive to masters, and then at the level of wives being subject to husbands. And yet there are cases, I believe, when it is appropriate, even for us as Christians, to rebel against unjust authority at any of these levels. Now, I'm not going to tackle that question this morning. When is it proper for us as Christians to to flee unjust authority or to rebel against unjust authority? I'm actually going to do my best to tackle that question next week. Just how are we as Christians to react when authority becomes so abusive or so terrible that we just cannot tolerate it any longer? And yet my purpose for this morning is to make clear how these calls for submission to authority do not somehow enable or establish wicked or corrupt authority. In essence, I'm asking the question, what is the Christian doctrine of authority? How are we as Christians to receive, to understand authority? So that's where I want to go this morning. Now, before I go there, I do want us to just remember where we're at in 1 Peter and make clear what Peter says so that I can respond, so that I can interact with 1 Peter in an effective way. It's important for us not to somehow mute or diminish what Peter is commanding us here to somehow make it easier to swallow. One way that Christians often wrongly go about defending biblical doctrine and defending the truth is by trying to somehow blunt the force of what Scripture is commanding us to do. It's like we think that Scripture needs us to somehow defend it or qualify it if it's going to be valid. I love what Charles Spurgeon says about defending Scripture, though. He says, Scripture is like a lion, and if you want to defend it, it's best to just let it out of its cage. And so that's what we should do when we're defending Scripture. We don't need to apologize for Scripture or blunt Scripture. We need to dive into Scripture more if we want to truly understand it and truly defend it. So one way that some people would want to qualify these verses in order to make them more palatable or make them easier for modern ears to hear is they might look at these calls to submit, like servants, submit to your masters, or wives, be subject to your husbands. They would want to look at these commands and they would want to say something like, well, submit doesn't really mean submit. It means something else. And so they would qualify it in a dozen different ways. And In that way, I don't think that they're being faithful to the biblical text. I think that they are qualifying the biblical text to no end to, in essence, blunt the force of what God commands us here. I do believe that in these verses, when Peter is commanding us to submit to each of these authorities, whether it's government or whether it's servants and masters or whether it's wives and husbands, I do think he really means submit. 
And especially in verses 18 to 25, it could not be more clear what he means, could it? How he says in verse 20, what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure, but if when you do good and suffer, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God? I mean, that is a high level of submission, is it not? To be able to do that? So these are difficult commands, and it is understandable why our modern culture would have trouble submitting to these commands. In fact, I don't think it would be any easier for the ancient Roman culture to submit to these commands. In fact, it was probably just as hard for those in this ancient Roman culture to submit to these commands as it is for us, although for totally different reasons. For us, it's hard to submit to these commands because we have such a high view of the equality of all people and we think that authority somehow violates our equality and so that's why we object to the idea of submission and to authority. But in ancient Roman culture, they believed that virtue was to exercise power and the best person was the one that could exercise the most power, the one who was most domineering. And so for them to hear a call like this... (laughs) To put up with abuse, to be weak, would have been just as offensive or ridiculous to them as it is to us. So let's not think that when Peter was writing this, that he was somehow writing it to a culture where this would be understood and acceptable. And so for our culture today, surely we need to qualify it in various ways. No, these words, these commands are just as difficult for us today as they have ever been to any culture in the history of the world. Human sinfulness is human pride. And human pride does not like to submit. That's the definition of pride, right? The definition of pride is to say, I know better. I know best. I'm on top. I'm in charge. I'm better. I'm more important. That's what pride says. And when pride says those things and we receive a call to submit, we want to kick back. We want to fight back. We say, I don't have to listen to you. You're not my boss. You don't know better than me. And so there's no human culture in all of history where commands like this have just kind of nicely fit into the cultural context. It challenges every culture, and it certainly challenges our own. Notice that in these verses that we just read, there are three distinct areas where Peter is calling for submission. So look first to verse 13, be subject For the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor, a supreme, or to governors sent by him. So that first area of submission is to the area of government institutions. And so in our modern day, we have a a federal system, right? Meaning that we have a, a federal government that governs us nationally. We have state governments. We have county governments. We have Uh, city or township governments. And so we have all of these human institutions, all these government authorities that Peter here is commanding us to be subject to. The second realm of authority is servants be subject to your masters. And if we wanted to generalize this to us today, and in my last message, I qualified this in various ways, but to generalize this to us today, we could say this means that we should be subject in the economic sphere. So if you're working for somebody, if you're an employer to somebody, then you do owe him your submission or her submission. And then lastly, in 3 verse 1, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. And so this is in the more domestic sphere. So there's these three different areas where Peter lists out that we as Christians are to be in submission. 
Yet in the midst of this submission, it's very important to remember why Peter is telling us to be in submission. The reason why Peter is telling Christians to be in submission in these verses is for the purpose of evangelism. So look in chapter 2, verse 12, that leads off this whole section. Peter says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And then he goes on to outline What are these good deeds? What are they supposed to look like? And that's why we submit to government, slaves to masters, and wives to husbands, so that they can see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter even reminds us of this at various points in these commands. Look at verse 15 of chapter 2. It says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So do you see his reasoning? His, his reasoning is that if we're not a submissive people, if we're always rebelling, thinking we're better than others, not listening to proper authorities, then they'll have a lot of reason to speak ill of us, that we're upsetting the social order, that we're causing all kinds of problems, and nobody will want to glorify God when he returns if that's the way that we're behaving. Or Peter reiterates the same thing when he's talking about wives being subject to husbands. 3 verse 1, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. So the purpose of submission there is evangelism. It's making the gospel clear. Yet even here, we have to be careful to avoid a very common mistake. I don't think that Peter is at all telling us to be submissive simply for the sake of uh, public relations, so to speak, or a public impression. He doesn't want us to be submissive just so that people will think we're good, nice people. No, he wants us to be submissive because this is the way that Jesus himself was. Look at verse 21 of chapter 2. It says, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Okay, so when you are suffering unjustly, or when you are submitting to any authority, don't think that you're just doing it just to be nice, to be people pleasers, to give off a good impression so that people will think Christians are nice people. No, when you're submitting to some authority, think to yourself, I'm doing this because Jesus himself submitted to authority. Because Jesus himself submitted to unjust authority. Because even when Jesus was abused and reviled, in verse 22 it says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That is what Peter wants us to think when we are struggling to submit. 
He wants us to look to Jesus Christ, to look to the cross, to look at the the path to Calvary where Jesus never uttered an ugly word against those who were oppressing him, who were abusing him, but instead prayed for them and asked for God to forgive them. And so we are to behave in the same way. And when we do, what Peter is saying is that we will give God enormous glory. And we give God glory precisely because, as I said earlier, acting in this way is so against any culture in all of history. It'll so baffle anyone who sees it that they won't be able to help but to see the reason for the hope that is within us. And Peter will soon go on to talk more about that as well. And so this is why we submit. This is why we suffer to model what our Savior did to walk in his steps, to follow his example. So I hope just right at the outset here that you can see that to submit, even to submit under harsh conditions, is not at all something that is shameful or that takes away our dignity or that makes us somehow less than equal with those who are oppressing us. Rather, if anything, it dignifies us. It raises us up to what Christ himself performed, to what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, very God of very God, to what Jesus himself did. And so when we have to suffer under some kind of unjust authority, when we have to submit, when we don't want to submit, instead of thinking that we're somehow getting a a raw deal, that we somehow deserve better, Instead, think of the privilege that you have to share in the suffering of Jesus Christ himself. And let that fuel your submission. Let that fuel your walking forward. Yet, again, as far as I can see it, even with that kind of mindset in our submission, I think that our culture in looking at that kind of Christian behavior, looking at that way the Christians submit even to unjust or sometimes abusive authority, we'll look at that and we'll say, well, you know what, you Christians, you're really just enabling abuse. You're really just accepting these abusive authorities instead of fighting for justice. Now again, next week I'll tackle how we fight for justice, and in two weeks I'll look at the same topic from a different angle. But again, this morning... I just want to ask the question, does this Christian mentality somehow establish or excuse unjust authority? Or to perhaps put it even more bluntly and clearly, does God establish, does he bless unjust authority? After all, I could see, especially in ancient Rome, where there were servants with masters, you know, if they weren't a, a believing person and they were to read verses 18 to 25, they would see, ah, well, God commands my servant to be subject to me even when he suffers for doing good. So I guess I'm just allowed to beat my servant when he does good. Or a government authority could look at verses 13 to 17 and say, oh, well, Christians just have to listen to me, whatever I command. And so I guess that just gives me permission, gives me authority to command whatever I want. That's what, that's what God seems to be saying here. And yet to read these verses in those ways would be to wholly misunderstand what Peter is saying. 
As I've just said, Peter's main focus in these verses is on the Christian's heart of submission, is on the Christian's heart of modeling the life, the example of Jesus Christ himself. God's word holds authority to a very high standard. But before I talk about God's commands for authority, I do just want to acknowledge initially that God does indeed establish authority. You see, one of the temptations of the modern world, especially when we see unjust authority or abuse of authority, is to think that the correct answer is just to abolish authority or to level authority as much as possible. We think that if we can just remove all authority or remove as much authority as possible, then we will actually be able to remove injustice or remove abuse. In that way, we think of authority as essentially evil, as essentially bad. We think of authority as somehow the the core problem behind abuse or behind dictatorship or behind a domineering behavior, and we think if we just remove authority, then those behaviors will go away. And yet, from a biblical perspective, this is wholly wrong. From a biblical perspective, authority is actually a good gift from God. Authority is actually a picture of God's relationship with us. Just consider, so often we call God Lord, right? Maybe when you pray, you call God Lord. When we read scripture, we read the word Lord all over the Bible. What are we saying when we call God Lord? Lord is just another word for master. It's another word for authority. When we call God Lord, we are saying God is on high. He has all authority and we are his servant. We are his slave. That's what we mean when we call God Lord. So to think that authority itself is somehow suspect or is somehow evil is to question the very relationship that we have with God. And God all over scripture also commends us to call him by various names of earthly authority. In fact, God created earthly authority, I think in part so that we would have names to call him. Maybe the most obvious example is the idea of father, right? God wants us to call him father. And I think when God created the world, he created fathers in part so that we would know our relationship with him. Well, the relationship of a father to children is a relationship of authority. Yes, other things are involved, but fundamentally it's a relationship of authority. And so when we call God father, we are also calling him authority. God commands us to call him king. King is another human authority that God has established. And so in that way, when we call God king, we recognize that God created earthly kings so that we would have this image, this picture of our relationship with him. Indeed, even apart from anything earthly, we see that authority even exists in the spiritual realm. God is the highest authority among a whole host of spiritual beings. And even those spiritual beings seem to have some measure of authority. We read about Michael, for example, who is called an archangel. An archangel seems to indicate that he is somehow in authority over other angels. And so even in the spiritual realm, there are levels of authority. 
And God has created this authority precisely so that we would have a picture, an earthly understanding of our relationship with him. And so we don't need to kick against authority as such, thinking that authority as such is somehow evil or bad or conducive to wicked behavior. Rather, we need to understand how God has designed authority to bless us. I remember in, uh, in high school civics, I had a really good teacher one year. And I say he's a really good teacher just because I can actually remember one of the lessons that he taught me. You know, there's not many high school teachers that you can say that of. I remember it was probably close to the first day of class. And, uh, and he said, if you don't learn anything else from me this year, I want you to learn this one thing. And then he gave this quote that's from a, a British politician, Lord Acton, that says, power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Now, I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. There's a lot of knowledge in that. But again, I think that we as Christians, if we are thinking about that from a biblical perspective, we have to qualify that in an enormous way, do we not? Because who is it that has absolute power alone? It is God, right? God has absolute power. Is God absolutely corrupt? No, God is not absolutely corrupt. He is perfectly holy, perfectly just. And so even though, yes, it is true that for us as humans, power is liable to corrupt, power itself is not an evil thing. God himself has all power, and he is not evil. The perfect vision or the perfect ideal of power being exercised rightly, I think is spoken of most beautifully in 2 Samuel 23. In 2 Samuel 23, these are the last words of David. In fact, the book of Samuel even calls these the the last words of David. And listen to these last words of David. Remember, David was a king, right? He was someone in authority over Israel. And this is what King David says. He says, the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of Yahweh speaks by me. His word is on on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me. Okay, so do you hear all that repetition? This is what God is saying. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Isn't that a beautiful picture of what authority can yield? When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. You see, biblical authority, good authority, is life-giving. It is gift-growing. It is enabling. It is empowering. Abusive authority takes away, steals, takes it upon oneself. But good authority, biblical authority, gives away, empowers, blesses. 
And so that is the kind of authority that we should pray for, that we should seek, that in whatever kind of authority we may have, whether as parents or husbands or employers or teachers, whatever our authority may be, that is how we should strive to exercise our authority. Not apologetically, like, oh, I'm so sorry I have authority. I'm going to try not to have authority over you. But rather saying, my authority can be a good gift. And I believe that God himself establishes authority for our good. And again, this is ultimately because God himself is the ultimate authority. And because he himself is the perfect picture of authority. And so I think the mistake that people often make is they hear this word authority and they'll hear those, those words that I just spoke, that God establishes authority and they get a little scared because they immediately associate authority with someone who just likes to give commands, right? With someone who just likes to bark out orders, with someone who's domineering, with somebody who runs roughshod over the weak and over those who have various problems, And we think that that's what authority must be. That's what authority must mean. And yet, Scripture could not be more clear that that is not what authority means. That that is actually a gross abuse of authority, not proper authority. And so, if anyone were to come to 1 Peter and to come to these chapters and were to see, aha, I see here that these verses are somehow enabling or giving me authority. Therefore, I can just do whatever I want because I have authority. They would be grossly misunderstanding God's design for authority. Having authority does not mean being authoritarian. It does not mean you're allowed to just give orders and expect others to follow. That is not a good or a wise use of authority. Some of God's harshest words of condemnation in all the Bible are for leaders who use their authority to be domineering instead of serving. I mean, just consider maybe for the most obvious example, who does Jesus treat most harshly in the Gospels? The Pharisees, right? The leaders. And why does he treat them so harshly? He treats them so harshly precisely because they are leaders. Because they are leaders who have abused their authority. Matthew 23, verse 2. The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. That is, they have authority. So do and observe whatever they tell you. Jesus is saying, listen to them, right? They have authority. But not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Do you hear Jesus' standard for authority in those verses? His heart for authority? If if you think that you are in authority and you just lay a burden on someone and you're not willing to lift a finger to help them, do you hear Jesus' words of condemnation for you? An authority who gives command, who teaches, must also practice what he teaches and must be willing to help bear the burden of what he teaches. That is right authority. So God gives some of his harshest words of condemnation for those who are in authority. When God establishes authority, he also always calls that authority to a higher level of conduct. And oftentimes, 
He calls that authority to a higher level of accountability. Just consider like the authority of elders in the church. Hebrews 13 verse 7, it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. So is it nice to be an elder in the church because now you have authority because now others are supposed to submit to you? Well, before you get too excited about that, keep in mind those words as those who will have to give an account. God doesn't give elders authority so that they can bark orders and be in charge. No, they better tremble before God because they will be held to a higher standard. James 3.1 says the same thing. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. It is a serious and fearful thing to be given authority in the eyes of God. Husbands are also given an increased load and an increased accountability. We see in 1 Peter 3, 7, the very verses we read this morning, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So it's as if Peter is saying that, husband, if you do not live with your wife in an understanding way, if you are domineering over her, if you take charge with your authority, then your prayers will be hindered. God will not hear your prayers. Or consider the calling given to husbands in Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Is there a more difficult command in the scriptures than that? (laughs) Love your wives as Christ loved the church? You see, authority in the Bible is not something to just kind of boast in, something to glory in, something to take advantage of. No, it is a heavy weight to bear. Parents are given increased accountability. Colossians 3.21, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. The increased accountability of master and employer in Ephesians 6, 9. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. So do servants need to be subject to masters? Yes, but God is telling masters, you're subject to me and there is no partiality with me. I do not see you as better than your slave. So you better be careful how you lead. And so we can see in all these ways that authority in the Bible is no excuse for pride, no room for boasting, no reason for domineering. Rather, it is a heavier burden of faithfulness and care and love and compassion than anything else. And this brings us to the ultimate standard of authority that we are given in the scriptures, and that is the authority of Christ himself, right? The scripture itself tells us that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord. That means that Christ is the highest authority in heaven and on earth. In fact, in the plan of salvation, as the New Testament speaks of it, the plan of salvation seems to even suggest that God the Father 
sent Jesus, his son, to the earth to endure the trial of crucifixion and to attain the glory of resurrection so that he might win a people for himself and be proven so glorious that he might earn, that he might deserve all praise and glory in heaven and on earth. So Jesus goes lower that he ascends higher. And so ultimately, what is the model of biblical authority? It is Jesus Christ himself. And Jesus himself laid out what this authority means in Matthew 20, verses 25 to 28. There, Jesus says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. Do you hear that? It shall not be so among you. What shall not be so? Lording it over, exercising authority over. So it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Beloved, do you hear the call of leadership in the Bible? Do you hear the call of authority in the Bible? It is a call to die for others. It is a call to serve others, to become the slave of all. That is the call of authority in the Bible. But again, make no mistake, because that is the call of authority in the Bible, does not also mean that we as Christians are therefore free to not listen to authority or not submit to authority. No. If we know that someone is in rightful authority over us, we are called to submit every time. And this is why we see commands in the New Testament like outdo one another in showing honor, right? So even as a leader, even as someone in authority is striving to serve those under authority as best he can, it's like those under authority are also striving to serve the leader as best they can. So it's like this competition, right, to see who can serve more, who can submit more. And in that way, the church of Jesus Christ is a beautiful picture of loving authority, of loving submission, of wholehearted and willing submission. And authority does not become domineering, does not become brutal or abusive or anything of that nature. But rather, it becomes humble, it becomes sacrificial. And ultimately, anyone who is a leader understands that when we want to gain influence, when we want others under our charge to listen to our commands. The way we do that is not through insisting upon our authority. Again, it's not through domineering. It is the way that Christ Jesus himself came and won our hearts. Jesus Christ himself descended from on high. He gave himself for us. And as we look at how Jesus himself gave up his authority and gave up his very life to die to win us, we are supposed to be so captivated with that picture of humility, with that picture of sacrifice that we say from the heart, King Jesus, if you would do that for me, I will do anything for you. And so we submit to him from the heart, not just because we call him King, not just because we call him Lord, but also because we call him friend, because we call him husband. And so husbands, bosses, 
elders, parents, all of you in this room, I charge you in whatever authority you have, imitate Jesus Christ in your authority. Not by insisting on the obedience of those under your charge, but by laying down your life for them in such a way that they will look at you and say, I must follow you. You are so good to me. You care so much for me. Why would I want to follow anyone else? And as we do that, we can trust the Spirit of God is at work to bring about beautiful submission, to bring about beautiful obedience. Wives, I hope this also frees you more and more to be subject to your husbands. Again, not worried that you're somehow going to get run over or that you somehow will become a slave or never get your way ever again or anything like that, but because you know that your husband loves you and he cares for you and he's going to lay down his life for you. So submission will be an easy and a happy thing and not something that is challenging or lessening or demeaning or brutalizing. So I hope you can see in this way how God's picture of authority and God's picture of submission in no way empowers those who are unjust, in no way approves of those who want to use their authority in abusive ways, but rather it actually gives a much more beautiful picture of society with, yes, many different tiers of authority, many different people who are given a a right to have authority over others in some way, but who never use that authority in such a way that they harm those under their authority or that lessens those under their authority. And most of all, I hope that you can see how Jesus Christ himself, even though he is Lord of all, and even though he does command your obedience and he commands all authority, he did not come and simply say, listen to me because I am God. He came and he said, listen to me because I die for you because I lay down my life for you. As Peter himself says in these verses, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. You see, Jesus was not like those Pharisees who gave commands but then didn't lift a finger to help. No, he did everything. He paid it all. He took upon himself the power of sin and death He absorbed all that power and he rose again from the grave to give us all power of life and righteousness so that now there is nothing that he commands us to do that he does not also graciously empower by his death and resurrection. So Jesus is indeed the greatest king of all. Beloved, if you have not come to Jesus as this gracious Lord, if you have not said to Jesus before that yes, I will obey you to the last degree. I will obey every last thing you command. I invite you this morning to come to him in that way. That is what it means to be saved. It means to say, Jesus is Lord. That I will no longer retain any rights over my life, any command over my life, but I will give all commands to him and I will obey wherever he leads. And again, we do that because he is a gracious authority. And finally, for those of you who may be even now suffering under unjust authority, know that God does hold those authorities to a higher standards. And so may you be comforted with these words from Romans 12, 19. 
He says, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So even those authorities who are domineering, who are abusive, they will not get away with it forever. You may submit yourself to God. You may submit yourself to right authority and you will know that God will reap vengeance on those leaders that do not submit to his design for authority. And so would you see the goodness of God with me this morning? Would you embrace his authority? And would you embrace the model of Jesus Christ for submission and for authority both? Would you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are the perfect model. The perfect model, not only as Lord and King, but also the perfect model of a suffering servant under an unjust master. God, I pray that you will help us to embrace your humility. Help us to embrace your beauty. Help us to embrace your majesty that you set in earthly form for a little while to show us what it means to truly submit. And God, teach us to follow in your ways in every regard. Lord, we come before you now with our prayers of petition on behalf of our own church, our prayers of confession for ways that we have sinned against you. And so, Lord, would you hear our prayers now as we intercede for ourselves in the world?